at the center is God dwells among his people. Today, we have the Holy Spirit as believers living in us. God dwells among his people. And so then the thrust of Haggai is, is that your priority? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's cover-to-cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. We welcome to the podcast today, Rome Van Dyke. Rome is the founder and leader of Sacroscript Ministries, an international team of seminary-trained individuals with various specialities, whose goal is to create Bible study curriculum that reaches across denominational lines and geographical boundaries. Rome is a pastor teacher, has traveled extensively training both pastors and lay people in the understanding and the beauty of the sacred scripture and the proclamation of the gospel. And today, Rome is going to help us better understand and appreciate the beauty of one segment of those sacred scriptures, the book of Haggai. Rome, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for helping us. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a privilege to be with you, Josiah. Well, when we come to the book of Haggai, Rome, where do we find ourselves in the story of scripture? It's a lesser known book of the Bible, one that some people listening may not even have ever read before. So where are we in the grand sweeping narrative of scripture and in the history of Israel? Yeah, it's a great question. Haggai is a prophet of uh, God, a prophet for uh, Judah in the south. And so he fits among the prophets. Really, in the Old Testament, we divide the prophets into those who wrote a lot, we call them major, and those who wrote a little bit, we call them minor. And so Haggai is one of the minorest minors. He's the second shortest prophet. And like you said, many people probably uh, may not ever have even uh, encountered him. But he, he plays a role, and, and sort of as you've hinted, if you thought of the Bible as a grand story, let's say you think of it as, as a movie or, or maybe a, a great novel, Every book in the Bible has a scene to play, and Haggai's scene might be small, but very important to bridge several things together. So the the context is Haggai is speaking to Judah after the exile. So let's just kind of build up to the exile. Can I do a minute or two to help people uh, remind them where the exile happens? God creates a people and and calls them through Abraham, says, I'm going to bless the nations, Abraham, through you. I, that, that, that is my plan. I'm going to build the people through you. I'm going to bless them. And he starts to build out this people through Abraham and his descendants. We get that story beginning in the book of Genesis. Well, by the end of Genesis, that people, which is really just a large family at this point, end up in Egypt through the story of Joseph and some of the details. Many people will, will know those stories well. And we pick up the story again in Exodus some 400 years later, where that family has turned into a nation. They, they, they've begun to uh, they've been blessed and, and prosperous in Egypt, and ultimately they get enslaved there, and God delivers them through Moses and brings them to their promised land. And so now we have God's people in the promised land, and that really is sort of how the story of the Bible unfolds. And so uh, we, we have a question of how are we going to rule and, and lead, and we go through a period of judges where, where we do it through judges and judgments and, and those types of things. And eventually, and, and God knew this would happen, eventually the people say, we want to have a king like all the other nations around us. And so ultimately, God grants them their wish, warns them about some of the fallout of what will happen when you go for a king, because really, he was their king, and and their asking for a king was really a rejection 
of God being their, their uh, king. And, and so nonetheless, they ask and God grants and their first king is Saul. Uh, ultimately, the kingdom will be taken from Saul and given to another family, David. And ultimately, uh, after David will come Solomon. And, and really, those three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, are the sort of the, the glory years of the kingdom, because after Solomon, the kingdom divides in two. And, and so it's it's kind of the beginning of a very long train wreck. You, you have unfaithful generation after unfaithful generation. And, and so now instead of one uh, God's people being one people, you have Israel or the Northern Kingdom, you have Judah and the Southern Kingdom, uh, you have uh, wicked, evil kings in the North, and, and you have many wicked kings in the South. You have occasionally uh, some who bring people back in repentance. But you have this ongoing cycle of disobedience, of idolatry, uh, of worshiping other gods, and God starts to raise up spokesmen, uh, spokesmen being prophets who speak his words. And so in the time we call this the divided kingdom, after Saul, David, and Solomon, we call that the united kingdom. In, in the time of the divided kingdom, we start to have the period of the prophets. And uh, we, we get this successive period of writing prophets who don't not only speak, but, but write down these books. And that gives us you know, uh, all sorts of books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Haggai and, and uh, the other prophets uh, of the Old Testament. And, and so when we're in this divided kingdom period, we're in many ways cycling downward where it's getting worse and worse. There's more and more apostasy, more and more idolatry, more and more wickedness and evil. And the prophets begin to warn that God will deal with this, that this doesn't just get to run forever. And so in 722 BC, just as one date to throw out there, Assyria comes from the north and essentially assimilates Israel, this northern kingdom, remember the kingdom is divided, uh, assimilates them into their wicked empire, an unbelievably wicked people in, in Assyria. And, and they, uh, amongst other nations they're grabbing, they grab this nation of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it isn't that much later, it's in 586 when Babylon comes for the third time and really destroys Jerusalem and has exiled the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they end up in Babylon for some 70 years. And so the, the exile, two major events in the Old Testament that we generally mark time with. The Exodus, where Moses delivers people out of Egypt to the promised land, or at least towards the promised land. And then the exile, and that's the 70 years that the southern kingdom uh, spend in Babylon in exile out of, their, uh, out of their own land. And all that story, just to get, because we're right near the end of the Old Testament, there's just a little glimpse of the return. We get the return under Ezra. Later, it's going to be uh, Nehemiah will come and we'll bring a remnant uh, with him. Uh, but uh, Haggai falls as one of only three prophets who speak after the exile. So we call that a post-exilic prophet, but Haggai is speak, speaking to the people who returned. And one thing I just bring out with, with the context of Haggai is we kind of think, okay, when you get exiled from your land for 70 years, I bet you everyone can't wait to get back. And as it turns out, most don't return. Less than 50% of the people in exile ever went back to their to, to, to Israel, to Jerusalem, to rebuild and, and to uh, set up that community again. And so Haggai is speaking to this remnant who remember the good old days. It would be like in Canada, you know, 10 provinces and losing seven of them. You remember when Canada went coast to coast? 
Yet now it's just three provinces and, and it's the provinces are smaller than they once were and, and, and less people and, and, you know, no hockey or something like that. And, and so Haggai is speaking to a, a people that don't feel great about themselves after the exile and the specific context that I'm sure we'll get into in just a moment is the issue of God's house, the temple, the place where God dwells, or the, the, the place that marks his presence has not been rebuilt. This might be an obvious question, but why is all of that important? I mean, you just gave us a long, helpful run up to Haggai that probably took longer than reading the whole book, <laughs> but it was good. That's what we need to do. Why is it important to situate a book like Haggai in that specific context so as to rightly understand it? How does that help us? Well, meaning all sits in context. Any meaning has a context around it. Allow me to use a sports illustration to, to maybe uh, build this out. If you take a preseason game, whether we're talking hockey or football or baseball or basketball, whatever it might be, a preseason game, your favorite team might win, but there's very little meaning in that. It's preseason, they're warming up, it doesn't count towards uh, the, the grand championship, whatever that might be. If your team wins that same game uh, the, using the same type of balls and bats or whatever it might be, the same context, but the context is in the playoffs, the last game of the playoffs, they win the championship, the context changes the meaning. In other words, both are games, let's say it's hockey, uh, both are games of hockey, but one's a preseason game, and so the context of the game reduces the meaning. They won six to one, but it doesn't matter. But in a final seventh game of the Stanley Cup, they won six to one. They're now the champions. All meaning sits in context. And so this is where we sit at the feet of God. For some reason, God chose us to give us the Bible made up of 66 books in English, and it's full of story. It's, it's almost 70%. They, they rated about 69.8% of the words in the Bible are in narrative, are, are, are part of the story. And so telling the story is how God has chosen to reveal himself. In other words, he wanted his people in teaching them as they would be parents training their kids. He wanted them tell, tell your kids the story of what I've done. Tell them about the Exodus. Tell them about Moses. Tell them about the 10 plagues and how I divided the Red Sea. Tell them what I did to generations that were unfaithful. So all that to say is God is the one who chose that the Bible would be mostly story. And, and frankly, it makes it so much more interesting for us because I love the book of Romans. Romans is a great book, but Romans is mostly doctrine. There isn't narrative in Romans. A little bit at the end of chapter 16 where Paul greets his friends and so on. But essentially, it's a, it's a strong teaching book. And it's wonderful, but it's really unique because it, it most of the Bible sits inside narrative. And so God chooses to tell us the story. And by telling the story, it helps us to do one major thing. God acts in scripture. Can we trust him to act in our own lives? Can we trust him to act in our own country? Can we trust him with our family? Moses had to trust him with his. And so we learn the stories of scripture so that we can do that. Amen. Well, now you've walked us up to the doorstep of Haggai, the book in question for today. You've set us in the right context. I'm wondering if you can now give us an outline of the book before we get into some of the details. How is it structured so we can get our head around the whole? Sure. Well, number one, it's very short. It's two chapters in English, so it's very readable. You can sit down in just a moment, uh, read through it. It's really four messages. It's four sermons, and there's just a little bit of context, and that's that 
you need to know when the people of Israel who, who begin to come back, the, those who do go back to Jerusalem, once uh, they are released from Babylon, and it's interesting, they're actually released because Persia conquers Babylon, and Babylon kind of falls apart, and Persia lets them go back. But they immediately set about uh, building the foundation of the temple. And then they get some opposition because I, I always like to joke, if you leave your home for 70 years, there's a good chance someone's going to be living in there when you get back. And as it turns out, there are some people in Israel and, and they're, they're, they're against Jerusalem being rebuilt. No temple, no walls, don't fortify it again. Uh, they're against all that. And so they have some opposition and they quit. And so Haggai is written and it's one of the most precise dated books that, that, that we can talk about. It's written in 520 BC. In our days, it's written between August 29th and December 18th of 520 BC. 16 years after the foundation of the temple has been laid, and then no work has been done. So what we're talking about is 520 BC, we have an abandoned work site. It's the Temple Mount. It's got the foundation laid and weeds all over the place. And people are concerned about trying to rebuild their own lives. I got to provide for my family. I got to put food on the table for my kids. And so God raises Haggai up to say, hold it. What about my house? It's been 16 years since you've worked on it. And so Haggai is really four messages. And in those messages is the response of the people. Uh, two of those messages are especially short, but it's a call for the people to go back to the temple and rebuild it. Now, in the midst of those four messages, by my count anyway, Haggai uses the title Lord of Hosts 14 times in this short book. Can you help us understand what that title means and what response it was expected to evoke from God's people? Maybe for us today, the Lord of Hosts, what are we dealing with there? Yeah, it's, it's a very picturesque phrase. Some English Bibles will translate that Lord Almighty. And then the, the idea Lord Almighty, Lord of Hosts, it, it's really the, the picture of God as a warrior. God as, a, as a leading an army, the Lord of hosts, the host would be the, the, the angelic realm that surrounds this central figure. And so the Lord of hosts is this, it, it, the image is strong, the image is powerful, the image is really unstoppable. That, that is the Lord of hosts, when he acts or when he speaks or when he commands, nothing gets in his way. This is about the Lord who has no opposition, the Lord who has no limits to his power. Because the, remember, the context is the people feel really dejected. Not everyone came home. Home's a wreck. It wasn't like it used to be. Solomon's temple's all destroyed. The gold is gone. We didn't bring any back. And so the, the, the picture in Haggai's language that, that, that the Holy Spirit has spoken uh, is this picture of see God as this mighty warrior with his angelic realm surrounding him. So really, it's this picture, and it's an awe-inspiring picture, right? The Lord of hosts. Yeah, very much. So it's this picture of God's power and his authority. How does that bring, for even believers today, both comfort and fear, a biblical fear? And what does that look like in our lives? Both of those things with the same image. Yeah, we, we sometimes think of the fear of the Lord, and 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 we, we're quick to say, well, it's a holy reverence. And, and and it is. There, there is a reverence to God, but we don't want to lose the meaning of the word fear. And so I've, in, in, in talking with others about this, sometimes I'll use an illustration of a power tool. Let, let's imagine some kind of a, a skill saw. 
right? If, if you're a, a carpenter, a, a, a builder, and you use a skill saw, there needs to be a fear because the saw can cut off a finger. The, the, the saw can, can cut an arm or, or can, can cut through a leg. And so that doesn't mean builders don't use skill saws, but, but they use them carefully knowing that what gets in the way of the blade gets cut. And, and so they need to be very careful about the results of that. Obviously, our God is far greater than a saw, but, but the idea is fearing the Lord, there is a recognition that you're dealing with awesomeness. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, was trying to portray, how do I portray the Lord? And he picks the image of a lion. And even in the, in, the, in the characters, they talk about Aslan the lion, and he is to be feared, meaning he's a lion. I mean, he, he can kill you in a moment's notice. But that was his way of showing that there's a tremendous strength and a tremendous power and, and maybe a positioning. Maybe we can see it in, in height. We are small and God is tall. God is great and big. Now, I'm not talking literal height, but when God speaks, we act because we're breathing his air. We're walking on his earth, right? We're made in his image. He's the one who gave us life. When he speaks, we obey. And so that, that fear is reverence. The fear is awe. And, and the fear is a recognition of an immense power, which goes so nicely with this idea of Lord of hosts, right? He's this warrior and he's powerful. Darius was, was the world-dominating power at that time, but doesn't compare to the Lord of hosts. And it just seems so appropriate how you describe the book of Haggai as well. He's calling them to a big task, and he's calling them in a way that rebukes them. But it's not just anyone calling them to a task and just anyone rebuking them. It's the Lord of hosts, so get to work. But also there's threats around, and there's discouragement. He's the Lord of hosts. He is the comforter as well. All of us together, I just can't help but think, if I was to live my life with the Lord of hosts in the forefront of my mind, if I viewed my life through that lens, how much better it would go for me, how much more comforted I would be and how much more reverent I would be, this idea of Lord of hosts. I lose sight of that in my life. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think I think of God too small and too weak. And, and that's reflected in my prayers. Mm. I, I'm only willing to pray this much for something, just a little bit. You know, I'm not sure the Lord will do that. We don't think of him as this unbridled power, this, this one who, who in one sense has no limits. And uh, it, it is a, it's, it's a wonderful reflection to be reminded of, and this is the richness of the narrative of the Bible. He, he portrays himself in ways that we can wrap our minds around. Yeah. Lord of hosts. I, I can picture a warrior. I can picture a, a, a mighty army. It's not the world I live in, but I can certainly picture it. And it helps me to understand my God. In Haggai chapter one, verse four, this is in the first of the messages of the four messages. God asks through Haggai to his people, this rhetorical question. And you've already alluded to this conflict at the beginning. Uh, when you described the book, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses well, this house lies desolate, speaking of his temple, that they had started, laid the foundation, but left it desolate and started rebuilding their houses, bringing in wood to panel their houses while God's house is laying in ruins. I'm wondering if you can help us kind of see the relevance for us today. What would be a, an appropriate parallel for Christians today when they read that message? Yeah, even just as it is, I, I struggle with that because the people are saying to themselves, hey, don't I first have to provide for my family? I mean, Lord, I really want to take care of your house, but man, my 
my, my, my kids need to eat tonight and then again tomorrow and the next day. And we, we so quickly want to think, Lord, let me do my thing before I help you with your thing, as if that's right thinking. And, and it's interesting because in all honesty, that's how I would think, right? I, I'd want to, yes, we need to rebuild the temple. Let me finish making my vineyard here so that I can you know, produce grapes and, and sell wine to, to feed my family, whatever it might be. And that's what the Lord is going after. Uh, the, the Lord is, is really addressing the issue of priority, priorities. And that is that they have something, their own well-being. And, and let's be honest, they're feeling for, sorry for themselves. They, they really are. They're, they're not what they once were. And, and that's got to be hard for anyone to downsize. I used to be here. Now I'm way down here. I, I'm no longer what I once was. And so they're feeling sorry for themselves. And so they're putting all their effort on their own, their own what, what, what will help themselves. And God says, no, no, you, you've forgotten where help comes from. You, you want to feed your family, take care of me, build my house. You, you, you want your crops to prosper? To take care of me, build my house. Because what they're missing, and of course, it really isn't even about the house. It isn't really about the temple. It's this recognition that in the midst of a pr- people who's hurting, you know where God wants to be? Right in the middle. He wants to be with them. And, and, and so what they're seeing is, no, no, I, I, I'll give God my leftovers. I'll, I'll help my family. And when there's time left over, I'll help God. And God's like, no, no, I want to be with you in, in your struggle, in the very presence of your hurting so that I can provide for you, that I can make your crops grow, that I can make sure that your children who are made in my image can actually be fed and, and clothed and, and grow in, in, in health and wisdom and, and godliness and spiritual maturity. And so mm-hmm. God wants to be in the center. And that's the timelessness of Haggai. I mean, we, we all struggle with that, or maybe no one else does, but I do, right? I, I, as, a, as a husband, as a father, that I can make it sound spiritual that I just want to worry about myself. And God says, no, no, if you want to succeed in fatherhood in, 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 as a husband, as a family provider, you need me. Mm-hmm. So take care of me and I'll take care of you. It was counterintuitive at that time. It was counterintuitive in the first century when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God yep. and all these things will be added unto you. And it's counterintuitive today to put God first. We, we want to do the same sin that the people of Haggai found themselves. We, we, we do. I, I do. I, and you're right. It's completely counterintuitive, but yet it's so revealing, which is the power of Haggai. It's so revealing that God goes on to say, you know, the mildew that your crops have been experiencing. Yeah, I sent that. You know, it didn't just happen. It wasn't an accident. I ensured that your crops would fail. I ensured that you went to plant and you got very little from your harvest. Mm-hmm. I've ensured over the last 16 years that all the work you did with this noble thing will get ahead, we'll get with God, right? Well, l- let me get ahead first. I'll give to the church, but first let me make my millions, right? I want to give out of my abundance. And the Lord says, no, no. I'll just make sure you never make your milling, your, your millions, right? I'll, I'll make sure I will frustrate your plans and efforts to quote unquote, get ahead because you can't get ahead without me. Mm-hmm. I am the provider. I am the great provider, which will lead us into the, the, the second chapter and that, that second message. I am the one who, who, who owns all things, mm-hmm. silver and gold, ultimately uh, Haggai will talk about. So I find that the parallel to today to giving is a very easy one to make. I want to give to the Lord 
out of what he's entrusted to me, not waiting to make the money so as to give to the Lord. What about other ways? You talked about being a husband, a father, family man. We've all got circles of influence in our workplaces, classrooms, whatever. What does it look like practically, do you think, to put God first and allow him to be in the mess, like you said, and to prioritize him? What would that look like? Yeah, I, I think it is well beyond just giving. You're right. Money is an easy thing to talk about. But really, the, the biggest things I think are, are time and, and talents and energy. Uh, our, our time, especially in a culture like ours, that what we really want to try and do is get as much entertainment in per day as we possibly can. And we have a variety of ways of doing that. And we have a variety of ways of justifying that. But, but also our, our, our work, things that God has gifted us at, we tend to put our own careers and then a little bit to the church. Or maybe I can't, I can't help the church this time around. I mean, I'm an accountant. They need some help with their books. But, but I'm busy, right? My career, my, my thing, and so on. And, and so I, I think it's much more holistic that if we think about the things God has gifted us at, the things that we enjoy, uh, the time that we have, uh, the, the, the monies that we have, it is all his. It, it's all his. And so it's, it's more holistic that it all belongs below him, if you will, that, that, that it is all a gift to him. We'll use Paul in uh, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brothers, in light of all that I've taught you in 1 through 11, that this, this long teaching of, of Christian doctrine of, of sinfulness and salvation, sanctification, therefore, in light of all that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so what is that? That's offering everything. Your, your time and, and your money and your talents and your abilities and your passions and, and, and your, your, your family as, as a family person that, that, that you're wholeheartedly serving the Lord. And uh, I, I think that's really what the, the, the parallel that we get from Haggai is that it makes sense in all levels. It isn't just a financial thing because God isn't asking for money at all in Haggai. Haggai has nothing to do with money. It's, it's really about the time to rebuild the temple and using your you know, sweat equity to, to build the temple. The reality is even when we do that, when we serve the Lord first and foremost, sometimes we can be discouraged. And that's where Haggai kind of goes next in his second message. When in chapter two, verse three, again, the Lord asks this rhetorical question, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory. And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So you kind of set the context for us at the beginning where they've rebuilt this temple. And some of the ones who came back from exile, who had seen the temple before the Solomonic temple and in all of its glory, they look at this and they weep and they say, what is this? This is pathetic in comparison. You know, how do we deal with discouragement? Even when we serve the Lord with all we've got and it doesn't turn out the way we envisioned it or the way we thought God would want it to turn out. How do we deal with that? Yeah, the Lord's economy is simply different. If you think about Solomon's temple, number one, David bequeaths all his wealth, which is he went and conquered a bunch of peoples, took all their stuff, made it his own, and then gave it all for the building of the temple. David was wealthy. Solomon was unbelievably wealthy. He takes his own wealth, all the wealth, taxes the people heavily, and he puts all of David's wealth plus a whole bunch of his own wealth into the building of the temple. Furthermore, they create a program where people are building, bringing gold from other nations to build the temple. And so you can imagine whatever that temple looked like was amazing. It had David's wealth. It had Solomon's wealth. It had wealth from the nations of all these people contributing to this amazing gold adorned building. And now we've got no gold. And, and, and exactly like you said, I mean, they build it and it's, well, it, I'm, 
you know, it's done. <laughs> you know, we, we got it all done. We, we got no gold, but we, you know, we, we got the walls up and the roof is sealed, right? And, and God uses a different economy. And, and, and so he doesn't look and go, well, no, no, we, we got, let's dress it up a little so it looks more like Solomon's temple. He, he takes it as it is and says, you've got to understand more is happening here than what you can see. And I think that's always true in our Christian lives, is that God is working beyond what we can see. If we just listen to the news for international events, we worry about this country and that situation, what's going on over there. But beyond the news or behind the news, God is working. And in all those countries that are on the news, there are believers there who are praying. And, and, and there are lives that are being influenced and things take turns, which God expects and God, uh, 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 God oversees and ordains, which news broadcasters, they get surprised at. I, I, we never imagined that, you know, Israel would do this or Iran would do that or, or something about North Korea or whatever it might be, because God is working. And so it's really the, the encouragement that Haggai says, or, or that God says through Haggai, is this idea that you have to trust me that there's more coming here than what you realize. Solomon's temple was amazing, but this one's going to be greater. And they're looking and they're like, no, it's not. And, and it's an interesting thing. How was that temple greater? Because it was kind of your plain Jane version, smaller, a little bit scaled down and no gold, no, no shiny beauty, if you will, to it. And yet they had no idea that God's solution to beautify it was, well, I'll send my son and he'll go teach in that temple. He'll pray in that temple. He'll cleanse the temple on a couple of occasions. And ultimately, the Holy of Holies will, will be opened up through the death of my son so that everyone has direct access to me. I mean, it's God's plan was far beyond their plan. And they were worried about, uh, about gold and silver. And, and so it's, it's this reorientation. It's this different economy that God works in versus how we think day to day. You've already started to mention the forward-looking nature of Haggai. There are parts of Haggai that are clearly looking ahead of the time in which he was speaking, and the people would have heard that. Things about the prediction that the latter glory of this house is going to surpass the former glory, and like they would have heard that and said, how on earth is that possible? And then he talks about shaking the heavens and the earth at some point. And then later at the end of the book, he talks about a signet ring being given to Zerubbabel, how should we understand these sections that look forward? Are we still anticipating them now? What are we looking forward to as it comes to Haggai chapter two, uh, verses six through nine, and then 21 through 23 specifically? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I think what helps us is I want to back up just slightly and say, well, how does prophecy work? Because there's some continuity between whether we're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, whether we're talking Obadiah, Haggai, there's something that God does with his prophets. And that is often there's some kind of a call to action or rebuke. In this case with Haggai, we've already talked about that. It's a call to rebuild. And then there's something of here's what's coming. Here's I've, I've got something in store. You can't see it now. It's in Isaiah. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Obadiah. It's in Jonah. It, it, you know, it's, it's an aspect of prophecy. There's something coming that's greater than you can imagine. And my call is, will you be faithful? You know, will you trust me? And so when we get to those specific passages in, in uh, Haggai chapter two, verses six through nine, as you mentioned, we see this idea that that the Lord is reminding all the gold and silver is mine, because that was really what, what they were thinking. Solomon had gold. 
He had his own gold. He got David's gold. He got gold from the nations. We were in exile for 70 years. We brought no gold back, right? Our gold went to Babylon. It never came home. And so in their minds, they're thinking, ah, like, how do we, how do we make this thing pretty with the gold and the silver? It's interesting if we look forward later, uh, Herod the Great is going to decorate this temple with a lot of gold. Like there is actually going to be gold, but it's really not about gold. And so kind of God says, just don't forget all the gold and silver is mine, right? Like wherever that gold and silver is, you might be thinking our gold's in Babylon, but it's mine. It's still all mine. The whole thing is mine. It's all mine. And, and so th there is a sense in which that's future where we'll see that claimed in, in, in when Christ returns, but, but there's also a presence which is, it's still true today. But like, it's still true today, right now, 2021, it's all God's. There, there isn't, you know, everything in the, in the International Monetary Fund is out of God's reach. No, it, it's all his. Or, or the bullion that's being saved, wherever they save that kind of stuff, it, it's all his. It, it all belongs to him. And so I would say that there's, there's a timelessness about that idea that it all belongs to God. And yet there is a very specific future fulfillment where literally we will see it, that the earth belongs to the Lord and that he will shake and purge the nations for their sinfulness and he will reign. And what's our image? Lord of hosts, mighty warrior. I'm conquering it all. No nation compares to him. Forget Persia. They might be great today. And they really were great. It was an unbelievable empire. The world had never seen an empire as ours as large as the Persian empire. And, and the Lord is like, yeah, that's nothing. The whole thing is mine. Everything Darius has is mine. Everything Cyrus had is mine. Everything Nebuchadnezzar has when he took you into exile, it's all mine. Mm -hmm. and, and so I would say it's both now that, that remains true, but there is a future fulfillment, which is very specific, which we are yet to see. One of the main recipients of these prophecies there's two that get called out well, certainly the, the the remnant but then there's also joshua and zerubbabel and the last the fourth of the four prophecies is directed specifically to zerubbabel governor of judah and the lord of hosts speaks through haggai and he talks about overthrowing the thrones of kingdoms and destroying the power and on that day he says in the final verse of the book i will take you zerubbabel son of shealtiel my servant and i will make you like a signet ring for i have chosen you what's going on here why close this prophetic book with this declaration to this relatively obscure and unknown person to most of us today yeah so god had made a promise to david and when King David uh, had sort of settled down from all his, his battles and all his conquering and so on, and had built himself his own house, his own uh, beautiful palace, he goes and says, you know, my God still lives in a tent in the tabernacle. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, huh, no, you're not. Um, I haven't called you to do that. I'll let your son do that. That's fine. But I'm going to build a house for you, David. And he promises him this, this throne that would last forever. And so David's son becomes King Rehoboam and, and we, okay, I get that. And then Rehoboam's son becomes King. And so we get this kingly line passed. Now, not all of these people were godly. Uh, most of them were very unlike their grandfather, great, great grandfather, David, and so on. Um, but, but there was this promise. And so when they go to exile uh, in Babylon, all of a sudden there's no King. I mean, the King is Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's the King of Babylon. There is no Israel King. He's been locked up and, 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 uh, and so on. And when they come out of exiles, this Zerubbabel, he is the, he's in the line of David. He should be King. 
Now, Cyrus, the king of Persia, Cyrus was a, he was in, in, in some ways softer than what was going on in that time. Many kings were very, very cruel, and, and maybe Cyrus was a little less cruel. And so his foreign policy was allowing everyone to return to their homes, rebuild their lands, rebuild their temples, rebuild their cities. And that, of course, applied, and, and, and Isaiah prophesied this, that God said, I, I'm going to use Cyrus to do this. So this is all of God's doing. And so you could basically go back and do whatever you wanted, except appoint a king couldn't have a king. And so Zerubbabel should be the king. Zerubbabel is the, in the line of David, he should be the king, but they're not allowed to have kings. Darius is the only king. And as it turns out, the Persians end up taking this phrase, which God will take back, and that is that they're calling themselves the king of kings. That's what Cyrus calls himself. And then Cyrus's son, Cambyses, and now Darius, they all take this title, king of kings. They're not the king of kings or the king of the Persian empire, and that'll last for a period of time and it all fades away. But Zerubbabel is, is the, the signet ring is what a king used to seal documents. And so there's a sealing going on when God talks in that final verse about the signet ring. There's a sealing going on, and he's just talked about shaking the nations. That is, there is a fate that all the nations face. And I'm sealing it with this signet ring that only a king wears, Zerubbabel. You're the king. You're going to be the king. I'm faithful to the promise I made to David. You're going to be the king. Again, not in a way they're expecting. They're like, great, when do we get to crown our king again? And it doesn't really happen that way. I mean, he will wear a crown. It just ends up to be a crown of thorns that's put on by Roman soldiers. It, it ends up to be different than what they expected and far greater far greater than what Zerubbabel could be as a sort of a local regional king is all he would have been at that point. And so it's a promise. Hang on. I promise in the line of David, it would last eternal. And I'm keeping to my word. It's just going to happen in a way different than what you can see. What a gracious extension to these people. I mean, coming back from exile, a much deserved exile after yeah. countless well warnings, countless warnings. And he still comes through and says, you know that promise I made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? You know that promise? It's still good. It's still yeah. valid in spite of all of your nonsense, in spite of all of your unfaithfulness. So what an act of grace. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And, and, and what a beautiful fulfillment in a ways we get to look back and go, okay, this makes sense. He never saw it. He just had to take the word of the Lord by faith. We get to look back and say, oh, the plan was beautiful. Mm. Well, let's zoom out now to capture the whole book again. If you had to summarize this entire book into a main thrust, a main point. Why is it important? Why would God preserve Haggai for us today? Yeah, I, I think at the center is God dwells among his people. Today, we have the Holy Spirit as believers living in us. God dwells among his people. And so then the thrust of Haggai is, is that your priority? God dwells among his people in the Haggai context is, can you rebuild my house so that you recognize that I'm dwelling among you? Our job isn't to rebuild a house. That's not what we're called to do. But the timelessness of Haggai that, that applies to all generations and all peoples, people here in the West, in, in Canada, in the United States, people in Africa and Asia, people from 100 years ago, people from 1000 years ago is, is that priority of do you recognize that at the center of any success it, begun, it begins with a holy submission to God. And, and so the, there is a, the, the presence of God with his people 
the question of do we prioritize that? And when we don't, Haggai is this clarion call to wake us up and remind us your failures, the mildew that destroys your crops, probably sent by God and to ensure us that we, we, we get our priorities right. And that is that God reigns supreme. We serve him and then he can bless us in the work of our hands. So you're saying using the book of Haggai as fodder for our building campaign at our church is inappropriate. Uh, as long as you have a 16-year delay built into it, I think you can try and make it work. Um, but, but I think it applies to so much more. That, that, that's really the thing is it's a great reminder for us all. It's so easy to be selfish. It's yeah. so natural to be selfish in our sinful tendencies. And Haggai's this great reminder of that becomes more destructive than you realize. And that's really what the message to the people was. You're destroying yourselves because you're you're leaving the Temple Mount with just a foundation and a bunch of weeds. Yeah. A convicting message for sure. And this last closing question is related, but a little bit more personal. I'm wondering during your years of study in this book, how has God used Haggai in your life, Rome, to teach you, reprove you, correct you, train you in righteousness, make you more like Christ, essentially? Well, I would say that there is still the idea of that priorities needs to be a reminder to me as well. And I would just say being in ministry, it's so easy to justify whatever it is that we're doing as the be all and the end all. You know, I'm doing this for the Lord's sake when we're doing it for our own sake. And so certainly that that message of priority. But I think there's some strong reminders that I have always found comfort in. And, and that goes back to the uh, this idea that all the gold and silver is mine. Uh, in the uh, in, in in Psalms, it says that the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And, and that is, it's helpful to remember that we're not living our lives to accumulate because we live in a culture of accumulation as much as we can. It's all his. We're not trying to grow and gather and so on in ministry. We're not trying to build out because we want us so much this and so much that it's all his. It, it's a, it's a constant reminder that it's all his. It's a, it's a beautiful book that you can just read so quickly. You can sit down in 10 minutes and eight minutes, you can be through the whole thing, but you can always be reminded of that. And so ever since spending some time writing a study in the book of Haggai and, and, and reading it, it's always brought that, comforting reminder it's a book that puts me in my place which is always in a place of submission of humility to a warrior god and 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 to a god who's moving forward regardless of what is on the news and regardless of what we think is going on in the culture that god is accomplishing his purposes that is great and a great place to end thanks so much for your time studying and for helping us think through this book of the bible really appreciate it rome glad to do it thanks so much for having me thanks for joining us this week for more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.